want to welcome you again to our worship service this morning, this Palm Sunday, and I hope that you're taking time to just celebrate uh, today. And as we've sung, Hosanna, which is a cry to God to, to save us. And, and of course, the people were crying that out and didn't really know all that, that they were really saying when they were saying that to Jesus. But, but we do, and so we, we, we want to cry out to God, Hosanna, Hosanna. God to save us. And we'll talk more about that today. I um, uh, just want to thank uh, Cheryl and Anna and Patrick and really the team that's here this morning um, for all the work that's going in and those who have been doing things all week to help us be able to do this um, every, every week, you know, doing you know, live things, recorded things, putting them together. It takes a lot of work. And so we do thank them for that. I also wanted to um, just let you know, like if you have needs or if you know of someone who has needs, um, whatever they might be, spiritual, physical, emotional, uh, financial, please l let us know. We, uh, you, can send a, you can send a chat right now on our YouTube. There's a little comment box there. You can send things in. You can send things to our, um, our email, info at wildlifebaptist.com, or you can just contact us. People are in the office every day. So we would love to know how we can help. We don't know that we can help, but we know that we will try to help whoever we can. Um, also wanted to let you know that, that this Friday, we will be having a Good Friday service. It'll be live like this. You'll get, uh, you can just go to the same website like you did today, and it'll start at 7. So we want to encourage you to be a part of our Good Friday service this Friday at, at 7. Well, we've been going through this um, Easter series, and we've been going through this uh, different ways of, of how God loves us and how Jesus loves us. And so the first week we said he loves us so much that he became like us. And then the second week, in some ways he was different from us. He, he humbled himself. Um, he did something that's very unlike us because our nature is not to be humble. But he, he became humble. He humbled himself and he came as a servant. And today we're going to look at this third thing. And that is he came to show us who God is. And so the Bible talks about this a lot in the Gospel of John. It talks about how when we see Jesus, we see the glory of God. And the glory of God is, you know, it can mean different things. But when John's using it, he's using it to show that, just to talk about how we get to see God. God shows up. And so it's great to, 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 to see that in the person of Jesus Christ, we see who God really is. It's what he came to do. And he loves us so much that God had already shown himself to us. Romans tells us that, that God shows himself to us in creation. He shows himself to us so many, in so many ways, but we either refuse to see or we cannot see. And so, so Jesus comes and he shows us God, reveals God to us. And that was important 2,000 years ago. It's important today because today, you know, we look more and more at um, even in the United States, we see these polls that say, like, you know, vast majority of Americans still believe in God. But there's no real definition of what God means. They just believe in some sort of higher power, um, some being um, God. And 
that's really not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to reveal to us some kind of ambiguous idea of God, some kind of nebulous you know, idea that, oh yeah, there is a higher power. He came to reveal to us a specific God. But there's a lot of people who either have decided there is no God, you know, and so they've become atheists, and you know, they've come to that conclusion, I guess, based on their own observations, their own logic, their own thoughts of saying God cannot exist, which in a sense kind of makes them God, I guess, at least in their own lives. But other people say, yeah, there's a God, but I get to make that God be what I want that God to be. In fact, in our church, if you, um, in last year, we were going through a study of worldviews, and Eric Dissinger had, you know, was using a book and, and giving us some statistics. And, and one of the things that he said is that the majority of not just Americans, okay, now, understand this. This isn't the majority of Americans. This is the majority of people who consider themselves Christians. They consider themselves practicing Christians. They, they you know, go to church. They read their Bible. They're part of you know, their faith community. That the majority of people who are in that, their conception of God was that God was a good being who wants to bless us. And that's all that they, they wanted to know about God. And so Jesus was you know, someone who shows us, here's this good, loving being who wants to bless us. And that really is not who Jesus came to um, reveal to us. It's not the God that, that he shows us. And so before we get to the passage today, we have a lot of, of just like this great story, this background that's happening before we get to John 11. And, and what's happening is, is that Jesus has become incredibly popular. In fact, um, I call it Jesus mania. For those of you who are children of the 60s, you remember Beatlemania, and you remember when the Beatles came to America, and you know, there were, you know, all those teenagers, especially the girls, just kind of pressed up on the, on the fence at the, at, the, at the airport as they got off the plane, and, and there's all the screaming and crying and fainting. There was something like that happening in Jesus' time. The, the Bible gives us hints of this. It tells us that that people would, would rush if they knew Jesus was, was going to be in a certain area or if they got rumors that he was going to be in a certain area, they would rush over there. And it wasn't just a few dozen. It wasn't just hundreds. It was thousands. Thousands of people would be just going from place to place. There was this Jesus mania going on. They were, they were asking the question, like, what is he going to do next? You know, he's, he's healing people. He's saying these things that in their days were, was great to hear, but it was outrageous. You know, he was, he was calling out their heroes, and he was calling out their, the people they thought were villains. And he was just speaking in a way that they had never, ever heard before. And then he was doing the miracles. He was casting out demons, you know, helping blind people to see. And so this, he was, he was it. It was Jesus mania. People couldn't get enough. But Jesus would do things every once in a while. The crowds would come. Tens of thousands would gather. 
they would, you know, the buzz would be out there. And then Jesus, Jesus would talk about discipleship. And he didn't just talk about discipleship. He talked about what it, the call to discipleship was. If you really wanted to be his follower, it wasn't about running around to see what next amazing thing Jesus was going to do. If you wanted to be his follower, it was going to cost you. Oh, it wasn't going to cost you the way sometimes we have some of these TV preachers who say, oh, send in some money and I'll send you a, you know, a handkerchief that I've blessed. No. He's saying it's going to cost you because when you start following me, the rest of the world is not going to like it. Your family's not going to like it. Your friends aren't going to like it. It's going to be hard. When you start living the way that, that, that I'm telling you that it's how you were designed to live, it's the best way to live. People who are, who are stuck in living this other way, they're not going to be happy because you're shining a light. You're showing them a different way. They're not going to be unhappy with you because you're forcing them or because you're browbeating them. It's simply because you're revealing that the only reason they're in darkness is because they refuse to leave it. And so Jesus would say these hard things. He would say things like, you need to take up your cross and you need to do it daily. He would say things like, you need to, to turn the other cheek when somebody smacks you. He talks about loving your enemies. He talks about that, that when you begin to really be a disciple, that it's going to divide families. He said hard things. And when he would say hard things, and he was no longer just the Jesus giving them stuff, just the Jesus doing amazing tricks, when he was saying, this is what it means to follow me, not surprisingly, people would leave. They would just say, okay, I guess, I guess the show's over. Um, we're not getting stuff, so let's go. And they would leave. And so we would, you know, we would see him telling us, I mean, telling these people these things, telling them what the cost was. Again, not because he needed anything. Jesus didn't need anything. He didn't need to come to this earth. He didn't need to do the things that he did. But he's telling them the cost because he's saying, I've got so much better. You're holding on to something. You're holding on to something that you've decided is so valuable. Whatever it is, you've decided this is what I can get or this is the best I can get. And, and they wouldn't let go. And he goes, if you let go, yeah, I'll give you something. Oh, not amazing tricks, not money, not all the things that you think you need. But I'll give you what you really need. And so the crowds would dwindle. Oh, he still had followers, just not the tens of thousands. And in John 6, 66, we, we see that it's exactly what it says. It says many of his disciples turned back. They turned back and they no longer walked with him because he would make these high demands. 
Well, something else was happening too. Not only was he was his followers dwindling, his enemies were getting stronger. You see, you had these this group of religious leaders and political leaders um, in, in the, at the time. And we hear about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the priestly group and the, the people in the, in, the, in the royalty. We're not even talking about the Romans yet. The Romans, you know, they're not really taking big notice at this point. But he has these enemies. And they're enemies for different reasons. I mean, the Sadducees, the priestly class, the, the royalty, they're enemies because they see what's happening. They see the Jesus mania, and they see that, man, if this Jesus guy does what some of these past saviors have done, it's going to cause a lot of problems, and we're going to lose our money, we're going to lose our power, our position. They wanted things to stay exactly the same. And so they didn't want Jesus to succeed. Pharisees were a little different. The Pharisees were actually listening to Jesus. They were looking at Jesus and thinking, Jesus might be the guy. He might be the one. Because he's doing things that other people haven't done. And the things he's talking about you know, are exactly the things we think need to happen. And their problem was probably twofold. One, Jesus refused to be the political savior that they wanted him to be. And so that, that was hugely problematic. The second thing is the Pharisees weren't stupid. They wanted things to change, but they still wanted also to hold on to power. And so this isn't happening. And Jesus isn't doing what they are telling him to do or wanting him to do. He's not using this great influence, you know, to, to kind of lead the, the people forward. And so now the Pharisees are like, you know what? If he's not going to do it, if he's not going to do it, let's just, let's just get rid of him. And so his, his enemies are growing. His enemies are, are trying to, to you know, plot against him, think about how they can you know, take him out. And so in the midst of this, this Jesus mania, the call to discipleship, kind of the ebbs and tides of, of people who are following Jesus, Jesus hears about one of his best friends, one of his best friends, and he's one of his most loyal supporters, and he hears that he's sick. And then he hears that he dies. And Jesus, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't go. He knew. He could have rushed over there, might have gotten there in time, but he didn't go. And so he's, he finally, you know, ends up going. And it's been a few days since, since his friend died. And those of you who know the story, you know his friend's name is Lazarus. And, and so he hears one of his best friends is sick. Then he hears one of his best friends has died. And he finally shows up. And you can imagine um, this man's sisters were also Jesus' really good friends. And they both are, are you know, obviously upset. They, they, they lost their brother. And 
and just that would have been enough, you know, just to kind of overwhelm them with grief. But they lost their brother even though he had a friend named Jesus who could heal people. That just makes it worse. I mean, it's one thing if you didn't know somebody like Jesus who you had seen heal people. It's very, very different when you've seen him heal and do amazing things. And then he doesn't even show up soon enough to heal your brother. It must have been like just, just, just doubly troubling because they don't know what to do. They're, they're, they're grieving, they're sad, but they're also angry. They're disappointed, they're frustrated. All of this is coming out in their, as when Jesus finally shows up. And we, we find Jesus you know, talking to them and saying these amazing things to them. He says here, this is where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. But we find this verse in John chapter 11, just before the verses we're going to read. And it's just two words. It just says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And when we see this, you know, a lot of people want to do a lot with these two words. I don't think we need to do too much. I think we just really need to answer the question, why is he weeping? It says wept. It doesn't mean he teared up. It means wept. It means tears flowed. It means that it was visible. He wept. And the crowd misunderstands, as they do always in John. In the Gospel of John, people always misunderstand what Jesus is saying or what Jesus is doing. And they think he's weeping because his friend died. But that doesn't really seem to be what the story's telling us. And that's really the only question we need to answer. Why is he weeping? Why is there this deep sorrow that seems to be coming from, from his soul? And I think it's because he is finally seeing something that he's always known. And it's one thing when we know something is going to happen, and it's another thing when that thing actually happens. And so he's always known that the people don't really understand. He's always known that the people don't really believe even his closest followers, even his closest friends, even the people that he spent the most time with and just poured into their lives. He knows it, but now he sees it. And he weeps. He weeps because they still don't get it. They still don't really believe. They still don't really know who he is. And they don't know what he can do. So he weeps. He weeps not because we would weep. We, if we were in that situation, it's like, Man, you don't get me. You don't understand me. Look, you know, I've done all this and you still don't understand. It would all be about us. It would be about why that rest of the stupid world doesn't, you know, recognize my brilliance or whatever. That's what it would be for us. But no, he's weeping for them. Not because he feels like slighted or offended or frustrated. 
He's weeping for them because he knows what they need is faith in Jesus Christ. True faith in him. He knows what will happen when they unlock that treasure. He knows the power that's going to come upon their lives when that happens. And they cannot see it. They're still stuck in this world. They're still stuck in the things that they think they need. And he weeps for them that they cannot see. And so here, we come to the the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. And so in John 11, verses 38 to 44, he says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, and even though the Bible doesn't say it, I think he's saying this with eyes that are just filled with tears. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You know, our modern sensibilities are like, oh, you know, this is just a created story to kind of, you know, develop the legend of Jesus. You know, they wanted to build the legend of Jesus. So, you know, they made up all these miracles, you know, his followers. You know, they, they meant well because they really believed in Jesus' message. And, hey, he's got a really good message, maybe the best message. So I'm okay with kind of going along with these supernatural stories. But we know it didn't really happen. We know something else must have happened. Well, let me just tell you, the Bible never presents these stories as though they're just made up, as though they're just added. The Bible doesn't present them that way. In fact, we know that that the, the books of the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, that they're written relatively early and they're based on stories that were told even earlier. And here's the clincher for this particular story. There's a name. In fact, not just one name. There's there's several names. And what is this telling you? Why are there names? If it had just said, okay, Jesus uh, was walking by this place one day and there were some people and they were kind of sad. He said, why are you guys sad? And they said, well, because, you know, this guy died. And Jesus said, oh, okay, hey, Come on out, dude. And that's all? Okay, that'd be one story. 
but they're using names. And these stories go all the way back to the early church, to the very beginning. Very easy to verify. Very easy to ask, not just the people who are named, but also to ask other people who were there. This really happened? It's so easy to ask. Yeah, if this was written 100 years later, 200 years later, sure. Could, could have been made up. That's what cultures tend to do. But these stories are from the first generation. And there's names which tells you people knew who these people were. That's why there's names. It's not just some dude. It's not just some people who were crying. And you can imagine what this does. It, it reignites Jesus mania more than ever. Whatever was happening before, it's just jumped. It's gone to a whole nother level. People are like just amazed. They've never seen anything like this. You know, the, the healings were great, but, you know, he just topped it. He brought someone back from the dead who wasn't just kind of dead. He was really dead. And he brought him back. Jesus mania is spreading. And that's why this, this, this event actually happens just a day or two before Palm Sunday. It's why the people are shouting Hosanna. It's why they believe he's the Messiah. That, okay, they've been waiting. Okay, Jesus... You know, he's, he's the guy. He's the guy. We know he's the guy. But he's not doing the things that the guy is supposed to do. He's just kind of hanging back. And they're waiting for the sign. And he gives them what they think is the sign. He brings somebody back from the dead. And they go crazy. A good crazy. Excited. They just know this is it. This is the moment we've been longing for, we've been praying for. Our Savior is here. And as we know, they're kind of right, but they're also really wrong. So just a few quick points we see from this. Jesus came to show us who God is really is. Jesus came to show us who God really is. And that's what he does in this story. He says, I'm going to show you the glory of God. I'm going to show you. God's going to show up. In fact, Jesus didn't say it, but he could have easily said, he's already here because I'm here. In fact, he had said things like that earlier. He had said things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He had already said, you know, I'm revealing the Father just by showing up. We even see this all the way back in John chapter 1, verse 18, where it tells us that no one has ever seen the Father, but the only God who comes from the Father's side, he's made him known. We see that. That Jesus, that's what John is, the Gospel of John is all about. Jesus is showing us who God is. He's even said, I and the Father, we are one. Not we're the same. He always keeps that distinction. But he says, we're one. 
And so he's, he's revealing who God is. And the religious leaders know exactly what he's doing because every time he does it in the Gospel of John, they want to kill him. They believe he's being blasphemous. And from their perspective, just to be fair, if you don't believe the guy who's saying he's, he and the Father are one is the Son of God, if you don't believe it, then it is blasphemous to you. If you don't believe that it's true, then it is an offense. He is making himself equal to God, which is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's showing us who God is. And, you know, if you read, not just in John's gospel, but if you look at other gospels, you know, what do we see Jesus doing when he's revealing who God is? Well, here he's revealing him as, as the life giver. He's the life giver. He can even give life to those who are dead. He's the life giver. In other places, Jesus reveals God as, as the healer. Jesus reveals God as the teacher. We talked about last week, he reveals God as, as a servant. He reveals God as, as one who loves. He reveals God as a friend. But make no mistake, he's revealing God this way so that we can understand. But he is still God. He's not doing away with that, that Jesus himself will be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is still God. He's still sovereign over the universe. He's just the sovereign over the universe who is your friend. He is the sovereign over the universe who wants and can heal you. He's the sovereign over the universe who will teach you and serve you. He is still God. He still possesses all that it means to be God. But Jesus helps us to understand these things about God that we wouldn't come to on our own. Because on our own, we would want God to show up in some other way. You know, in our current culture, what we're finding out through the coronavirus is, is that some of these things that we've worshipped and we think are so important are not really that important at this point. You know, like, for instance, all of our, all of our multi-millionaire athletes. How can they help? I mean, other than giving their money, other than doing the same kind of things you and I are doing and helping other people, they can't really do much. But notice, you know, Jesus doesn't show up with, you know, as, this, as the most awesome athlete of his time. He doesn't show up as a celebrity like in the typical sense of a celebrity. He doesn't show up as a political ruler. All of the things, you know, this you know, great soldier, he doesn't show up as, as that. He shows up as a healer and a teacher and a servant. So important. So important. We always want to picture God as having like, you know, big muscles and that, you know, that's what he, you know, if God showed up, that's what he would be and, and that's what we would want, we'd be, we'd be attracted to. That's what we would look for. You know, we're, we're looking for something 
like so much more about the package of something, what it looks like, the wrappings, than what it actually is. So many of us get, get attracted to, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, the churches we go to, the music we listen to, you know, the, the teachers that, you know, it's, it's all about not necessarily the substance of what they're saying. It's really so much more about the packaging. And notice what Jesus is doing. He's not there to entertain. He's not there to tell you what you want to hear. He's not there just to give you stuff. He's there to heal. And why does he want to heal you? He wants to heal you because he has a job for you. And it's a job you can do better if you're healed. He wants to teach you, not so you can just have knowledge, but because as you learn and as you grow, you can do the job that he has for you better. He serves, he loves, he's our friend. So what Jesus reveals about who God really is. Jesus also came to show us that God really loves. You see, God really loves us even when we're not perceptive or smart enough to sort out what we really need. What the people in this story think they really needed was for Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. That's what they thought they really needed. And now that they're grieving, what they think they really need is for somehow their grieving to end. And of course that seems impossible because the only way for their grieving to end would be if somehow Lazarus hadn't died. But this shows us how much God really loves. That he really loves because Jesus meets, he meets their perceived need so that he can show them their real need. Get that. He meets their perceived need. Lazarus is dead, we're sad. So he meets that need brings Lazarus back to life. We're not sad anymore. But he does it because he's trying to meet the real need. They don't believe. They don't believe. If all he does is bring Lazarus back from the dead and they don't believe in him, so what? Their, their real need hasn't been met. It's not enough just to to get people to, to come to a worship service. And if they leave here, you know, feeling better about themselves, you know, that's good. It's a perceived need. Maybe they feel lonely and here they feel like they belong. Maybe they have a sense that, that you know, there's no peace in their life and, and they leave the worship service feeling peace. That's all good. Those are perceived needs. But the real need is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the real need. You see, we need to meet the world's perceived needs. We do. But we cannot meet the world's perceived needs at the expense of meeting their real needs. I cannot say, I'm going to make 
you know, worship service, church or whatever, so attractive, so comfortable to, to get people to come to meet their perceived need if I am not meeting their real need, which is faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of churches that I'm not going to tell you it's a particular denomination. I'm not going to tell you it's a particular type or style of church. I'm just going to tell you, in my experience, there's a lot of churches that have said, we will only meet what people think their needs are. And, you know, talking about the gospel and talking about sin and talking about the cross and holiness, you know, that kind of pushes them off and offends them. And so we can't meet their, their need that, that they think they have. And so we're just not going to talk about that anymore. No. It's okay to meet what people think is their most important need. In fact, the Bible tells us to do that. Jesus tells us to, to feed people who are hungry, to give people water if they're thirsty. There's nothing wrong with talking about the blessings that come from being a follower of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong to talk about the fruit of the Spirit and the love and the peace and the joy and the purpose and all that we receive. But what's wrong is when we don't ask the question, why is he doing it? He's not blessing me just to bless me. It's because He's blessing me to prepare me to do his work. That the real need I have is faith in Jesus Christ so that I might be changed to do the kingdom work that he has for me. It's so important. It's so easy to get conformed to the world and to become so fixated on trying to meet the world's needs. The need is faith in Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't just end with faith. It doesn't just end with, okay, I have beliefs. As we talked about last week, what Jesus promises to do is that when you have true faith in Jesus Christ, when you truly accept what he did for us on the cross in, in paying the penalty for our sins, and when you truly say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior and my Lord, he promises to change us. He promises to give us his Holy Spirit. He promises to help us overcome our selfishness, overcome our obsession with, with death. He promises to help us really be who we were created to be. And so God... What we see in this text, what Jesus shows us is that God sent Jesus to give us victory over death. When, the, when John talks about the victory over death, he often talks about, he says, eternal life. And you need to understand, eternal life is not simply life forever. It's not just life that continues on and on. It's not just existence that never ends. The way that that John presents eternal life, both in the Gospel of John and in, the, in, in his letter. He says, Jesus Christ is eternal life. That eternal life is not, is not just a quantitative thing. It's about having 
the life of Jesus, which is eternal, but having the life of Jesus in us now. It's another way of saying what I just said, that we're changed, that we're no longer our own, that we have been made a new creation, as as the Apostle Paul will say, that this eternal separation from God that we were destined to 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 be in it's it's over we've been reconciled we have eternal life and so Jesus is is trying to show these these people this he's trying to show them the the power not just that he has but notice he doesn't Jesus doesn't show up and go you know Come on, Lazarus, get on out of there. No, in front of the people. And John makes sure that we understand he's saying this out loud. He says, Father. He's pointing people towards God. He's pointing them towards the Father. And he says, I'm doing this that they may believe that you sent me. Pretty amazing. You see, according to God's plan, it's not enough just to believe in God. Why is it important to believe that God sent Jesus? Because we need to believe in Jesus. And we believe in Jesus not just for our own salvation, but really, if we think about salvation for the world, if the world has any hope, that hope is in Jesus Christ. Oh, the world can continue to do what the world's doing. But the way the world goes, history shows us, you know, it goes back and forth between, you know, pulls towards just putting one person in charge or one group in charge to nobody's in charge. We all get to live however we want. And there's, in society, there's always that push and pull back and forth. And left on our own, that continues. Left on our own, as much as we would like to think that we're going to somehow evolve and get better, and then we're all going to somehow you know, embrace the brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity, it's not really what history shows us. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. We have to be changed. We cannot simply keep trying our best. It's not going to work. We need Jesus Christ. It's why those of us who follow Christ, who consider ourselves disciples, it's, it's why we follow. It's why we admire him. It's why we want his spirit to change us. It's why when we hear about humility and servanthood, we're not offended by it. In fact, we want more of it. Because it's not just about saving us. If it was just about saving me, sure, you know, Jesus, save me, and then I can just be as proud as I want to be. I can just be as selfish as I want to be. Because, you know, you saved me. So awesome, thanks. But when we realize it's not just about my salvation, and it's not just about the salvation of my friends and my family and those who are close to me, But the Bible tells us in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, that he wants the world to be saved. 
we understand that God's come up with this, what I think is a crazy plan. And if he were not God, I would think it's the dumbest plan ever. Because God says, this is how I'm going to spread this message. I'm going to spread this message through people. And I want to tell him, God, do you know us? Do you know how unreliable we are? Do you know how unfaithful we are? Do you know how we get so distracted so easily? How we mean so well every day we get up, we're, we have to stay at home, we're telecommuting, we get up, we intend to put in a good eight hours of work, but then we have to spend the first three hours on Facebook and checking email and social media and binge watching a few shows, and then maybe we get around to it. You know what we do. You know how easily we are distracted. You know that, right? You're trusting us, right? And I just have always said this. That's what's so amazing about God. He uses people like us. Could he do it better? Could he do it faster? Could he have just had the angels do it? Could he have pre-programmed, you know, you know, androids or something to do it for him. Sure, he could have. But he uses us because we know that when it happens, it's not going to be because of us. It's, be, it's going to be because of Christ in us. That God has done, done something incredible. And so, we, we love that Jesus shows us who God is. And I pray that we, we, have, we have believed in Jesus Christ and we receive him for all that he is. Because otherwise, we're destined to live in this world gripped by fear. There are people so deathly afraid of coronavirus. They're gripped by fear. They can't even think of anything but themselves and their own survival or the survival of, of their family and friends. They're so gripped by fear. And Jesus has the same message for those of us who are like that, that he had for the people back, back then. We need to be unbound. We need to be let go. We need to live. And I want to challenge you that if you're one of these people who's so gripped by fear, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, that's not why God has placed us in this situation, to be paralyzed by fear. He's placed us in this situation to draw closer to him, to draw closer to one another, and to serve this world. How are we going to do that?